Hello there. This is Jim Mosley, your host on the Bible History Guy radio broadcast, sponsored by Winterwood Creative, LLC. Do you have questions about the Bible? Good, because faith is the daughter of doubt, and we're dedicated to turning doubt into Christian faith through facts. We show how all the Bible stories are not fables or myths, but historically accurate narratives that stand up to every challenge, whether from science, atheism, or popular culture. So if you have questions about God or the Bible that you would like answered, you can reach me through our website, www.thebiblehistoryguy.com. There you can read our blogs and view all our books and resources. Or you can email me directly at jim at thebiblehistoryguy.com. That's jim at thebiblehistoryguy.com. Well, it's Christmas time, that wonderful season. And the story of Jesus' birth is told in two places in the Bible. The Gospel of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, and the Gospel of Luke, also in chapters 1 and 2. Matthew tells about the Annunciation, the Star of Bethlehem, the visit of the Magi, or the wise men, Herod's slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem, and the Holy Family's flight to Egypt. Luke tells of the prophesied birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, of Mary's visit to Elizabeth, of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, of the angels and shepherds, and of Jesus' presentation at the Jerusalem temple. When we put these two accounts together, we get a whole story. And it's remarkable how perfectly the two narratives, although different, fit flawlessly together with astonishing historical accuracy. There wouldn't be time in this broadcast to give you all the citations and footnotes of the story I'm about to tell you, but if you want to get those, my book, The Biographies of Jesus' Apostles, Ambassadors in Chains, just came out, and you can get it wherever books are sold online, or you can go to our website, www.thebiblehistoryguy.com, to find it, with a special listener's discount. John the Baptist was born six months earlier than Jesus, and it happened this way. His father, Zechariah, was a Levite, a priest, and so was his mother of the tribe of Levi. They were relatives in some way of Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us if they were cousins or siblings or what, but it just says relatives. However, one way or the other, Mary had to be at least half a Levite of the priestly tribe of Levi, which is curious because Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of King David. Anyway, on Saturday, the Sabbath, March 1st, 3 BC, while Zechariah was serving his turn as a priest before God in Jerusalem, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple and burn incense. It was the time of the afternoon prayer, that's 3 p.m., and a whole bunch of people were standing outside the temple praying in anticipation of the Sabbath ending at sundown on that Saturday. Inside the temple, there was an altar of incense which stood in front of the veil that divided the outer sanctuary from the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. There, standing at the right side of the altar, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah. Fear fell on him, and he was troubled. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, this message must have crowded Zechariah's brain. The first stunning prophecy was that he and Elizabeth would at last have a child. But as a trained priest, Zechariah must have understood more than that. He no doubt realized from what the angel said that his son would be a Nazarite like Samuel and Samson. As a Nazarite, he would take vows to drink no alcohol, not to touch a corpse, and not to cut his hair or his beard. Nazarite vows could be for a time or for life, but since the angel was calling the boy a Nazarite from birth, it sounded like a lifelong vow. Samuel had kept his vows for life. Samson had violated his. Which prophet would Zechariah's son be like? But even more impressions must have come flooding into Zechariah's thoughts. The angel said things about this boy that may have reminded the priest of the prophecy by Malachi made 428 years earlier. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God had promised to send an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, from as far back as Eden, Genesis 3.16, and from the time of Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. The sacred scriptures were laced through with hints about this mysterious Savior, for example, in Isaiah 53. The priests speculated about him endlessly, and of course, wherever there are two priests, there are always three opinions. But one thing everybody agreed about was that Elijah would return to pave the way for the Messiah. Well, the angel had just told Zechariah that this miracle son of his would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And this was happening now and through him. Like everyone else in the priesthood and probably many among the common folk, Zechariah must have known Daniel's prophecy about the coming of Messiah the prince in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Daniel foretold that 490 years from the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the Messiah would come, be cut off, and have nothing. 454 years before Zechariah had this encounter with the angel, the Persian king, Artaxerxes I, had issued a decree permitting Ezra the priest to lead a second wave of survivors out of Babylonian exile back to Jerusalem. The earlier wave of survivors, under Zerubbabel the governor and Jeshua the priest, had already laid the foundation of the second temple, replacing Solomon's first temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed in 586 BC. So the second wave of Jewish survivors, under Ezra the priest and then under Nehemiah the governor, would rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so it was from this Persian decree that Daniel's prophetic clock began ticking. Daniel said that the Messiah would do many things. He would finish transgression, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint a most holy place, make a firm covenant with many, put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, but then be cut off and have nothing. After that would come a flood of war and desolations, ending with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And all this really did happen. Now, Zechariah and everyone else could count Daniel's prophetic clock had started ticking 454 years before. The alarm would go off in the 490th year, a mere 36 years ahead. For the Messiah to come and do all those prophesied things in the next 36 years didn't leave much time. 
Many people believed that the Messiah would be born soon or was perhaps even alive already and walking anonymously among them. Now, here was an angel telling Zechariah that his unborn son would be the Elijah forerunner who would pave the Messiah's way. It probably took mere seconds for all these long-embedded teachings to arise and swirl around Zechariah's priestly brain. But in the presence of this strange and frightening being, the angel, all he could reply was, How shall I know this? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. Oh, that name must have sent a shock through Zechariah's learned mind. Gabriel was the very angel who had appeared to Daniel and had told him all those things about the Messiah. This angel had appeared to no one else in history but to Daniel and now to Zechariah. Gabriel continued, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Now behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. With that, Gabriel vanished. Zechariah tried to speak. Nothing. Probably he sank down and pondered, waiting for his racing heart and heavy breathing to calm down. Then he arose and came out of the temple into the slanting afternoon sunlight. Outside, the people assembled for the afternoon prayer were wondering at Zechariah's delay. When they realized that he was unable to speak, he made signs and conveyed that he had seen a vision. There must have been a great deal of speculation among the families of Jerusalem as they sat down to their Sabbath meals after sundown on that astonishing day. Well, Zechariah was no doubt eager to return to his home in the Judean countryside to tell his wife Elizabeth what Gabriel had said, but he had to wait because his term of service continued for another week. Even then, when his turn ended on Friday, March 7th, he couldn't travel home immediately because that would violate the Sabbath ban on travel. So he remained in Jerusalem from sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday, probably observing the Sabbath with relatives or friends, who noted that he continued to be mute. This was more than laryngitis. The angel had truly taken speech from him. Church tradition holds that Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in the town of Ein Karem, just an hour and a half walk from Jerusalem. So, on Sunday, March 9th, Zechariah no doubt rose with the sun and set out eagerly for home. There was likely a youthful spring in his step that he had not felt for many years. When he met Elizabeth, it must have been a joyful reunion that reminded them both of when they had first met. Zechariah had to tell her the story, but he had no speech. So, like a good priest, he doubtless had written down every word that the angel had said to him, and he must have shown his journal to Elizabeth. Unlike Greek women of her day, Hebrew women were taught to read and do math, and so she could read all that had transpired, even though her husband remained mute. His speechlessness was probably a little frightening, but Gabriel had said that it would be temporary, and maybe they joked about it. Elizabeth no doubt planned to enjoy this time when her husband would have to listen to whatever she said without being able to talk back. Zechariah and Elizabeth were maybe happier than they'd ever been. The Holy Spirit was in their midst, and as they embraced each other, Elizabeth conceived. Counting the days of gestation backwards from John's birth, she conceived sometime between that very evening, Sunday, March 9th, and the next Sabbath, Saturday, March 15th, 3 BC. Elizabeth could feel the life within her, even though there was no physical sign of it yet. John 
she probably kept murmuring to herself. She said happily to her husband, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth had long felt inadequate and lonely for being unable to bear children. Now her dream was coming true. But she hid herself for five months. Why? Probably in part, she wanted time alone to savor this miracle. Probably in part because her husband remained mute and could not explain the miracle to all their friends and neighbors or relatives who would have pummeled them with questions. And probably in part because there may still have been a bit of doubt in her. What if the baby did not survive? What if he were stillborn? She was an elderly woman and such pregnancies were often hard. Perhaps she would rather that nobody ever knew than to make her pregnancy public and then have it fail. Well, goodbye for now. You've been listening to Jim Mosley, your host on the Bible History Guy radio broadcast, sponsored by Winterwood Creative, LLC. Do you have questions about the Bible? Good, because faith is the daughter of doubt, and we're dedicated to turning doubt into Christian faith through facts. We show how all the Bible stories are not fables or myths, but historically accurate narratives that stand up to every challenge, whether from science, atheism, or popular culture. So if you have questions about God or the Bible that you would like answered, you can reach me through our website, www.thebiblehistoryguy.com. There you can read our blogs and view all our books and resources. Or you can email me directly at jim at thebiblehistoryguy.com. That's jim at thebiblehistoryguy.com. <laughs>